Are you a real estate syndicator or professional who is looking to grow your business in 2023? Are you tired of attending networking meetup after meetup and thinking that there has to be a better way? Have you ever thought about podcast guesting? According to Statista, podcasts are going to reach over 100 million listeners by 2024. Podcast guesting allows you to tap into that network of listeners. At Podcasting You, they have worked with hundreds of investors to secure guest placements on thousands of podcasts so they can raise more capital, generate brand awareness, and increase their credibility. If you're interested in learning how podcast guesting can help grow your real estate business in 2023, Go to podcastingu.com forward slash syndication to book your free discovery call. This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, we have packed a few different shows together that we call Highlights to help you to get the most bang for your time and educating you on the topics that you want to learn from. We would love to hear from you. I am grateful that you are with us today. Have a blessed day. Our guest is Jonathan Farber. Thanks for being on the show, Jonathan. Excited to be here. Look forward to it. What gave you that drive early on, whether it was golf, how successful you were there, or moving into real estate? What gives you that drive in your 20s now to be able to say, okay, you know, I'm laser focused on this real estate business. I'm not focused on buying that new car or doing this over here like all my buddies are doing. How do you have that level of focus in your 20s? Two things. One was more or less like a reflection moment or a deflection moment. But basically, I kind of looked around at my parents who I love and they gave me everything as a base. And they came on to, I'd say, a little bit more financial challenge and kind of started thinking about what do I want in life? You know, I'd kind of just gone through the years with just that go with the flow mentality, like that Steve Jobs video, kind of staying in the lane and not banging against the walls too much. And then one day I kind of saw what they were doing and I saw some of their friends and realized that they weren't really set up the way that I kind of wanted. So then I think if I had any other superpower, it'd be always asking a question instead of looking at something like a problem. So framing a problem as a question. So seeing other people in situations that maybe I'm trying to model or look up to and think, do I want to trade places with that person? Not really. Okay, so in there, that situation, how do I not be in that situation? And then that can give me like a game plan and steps to go back to. The second thing was when I started working in a corporate role, the company had a layoff a couple months onto the job. And that was really eye-opening for me to see people in their 40s and 50s with a family, a mortgage, all these expenses that now the faucet just got turned off. So they had one stream of income, now it was taken away from them. And how are they going to provide for their families? How are they going to keep their mortgage payments? How are they going to keep their lifestyle? And it was really scary for me. So for me, starting with that first moment, seeing my parents have a little bit of financial challenge in the post 2008 years, it was kind of just like a light switch went on and it's never gone off since. And then a few people just were really instrumental to me, like Jim Rohn. I mean, I just love his content. And I got exposed to just a couple of it through a mentor at the time and really became obsessed with it. And from there, it's just self-fulfilling. Awesome. Well, congratulations again. I want to back up just a little bit and I want you to elaborate a little bit on or maybe give us an example or two of how you started networking and growing your network at an even younger age or even when reaching out to those cold calling CEOs and things like that and maybe some other things you did after that and are doing now to grow your network. I like the idea of turning a lot of things into a game or just putting a system in place. And I love Tim Ferriss. I love a lot of system builders and process people focused. So for me, I'm always 
thinking about how can I get the highest result with the least effort and energy. You know, and some people would call that lazy. Some people would call it high impact lazy. But for me, when I was in college, I came up with more or less a game reaching out to these people. So I was on the phone with my friend one day, also that guy, Max Bidna, very smart marketer in New York, runs a digital ad agency. And I was talking like, I don't have any internship experience. My grades are so-so. I don't have any connections. Like my family doesn't come from money. I don't have relationships. I'm starting cold. I'm just cold applying and being another number on a pile. So I was like, you know what? Maybe LinkedIn. And we started talking about you could reach these people on LinkedIn. So every day I turned it into a game. I was trying to reach out to 40 people a day on LinkedIn. And I had three scripts that I was just copying and pasting. And they didn't know it, but I was going about it from the approach of how to win friends and influence people, another impactful book in my life. And was just taking the approach, what can I learn from these people? I have two ears, one mouth on all these calls. And what can I maybe prod with them and lead them to maybe give me a referral, pass me to a hiring manager, or get them to have the idea to help me with a job? I think the other thing that I like about sales and my strategy is it's always been a little bit more of plant the idea in someone else's head instead of try to jam it down. So I would ask all these questions of, how did you get your start? Was there anyone that helped you at the beginning? What advice would you give yourself starting out? And that would back them into a lot of times. And then I took this along with sales in my further years. But I found a lot of times that got them to the mindset of they actually did get help at the beginning. Maybe they've forgotten that. And now they want to try to help someone else. So I just made it a game. And every day I had a spreadsheet and like a tracker where I would just say, okay, what 40 people did I hit today with the template? And then I would just block out times on my calendar to do these informational interviews. And I had a next step. And I was using kind of a CRM before I knew what it was. And then that's sort of the approach I've taken with real estate. Podcasting has been the most incredible way to network, meet people, build my own systems and process. I know we were talking about that a little before the call that you have some amazing processes for your setup to do a daily podcast. Like It's incredible what you do. But what I found is that by doing the podcast, then it's actually helped me in other parts of my life to build systems and automate follow-up, Calendly links, templates, things like that, and build a virtual team to fill in some of the gaps of things that I wouldn't do. So I love bigger pockets. My favorite way to network now is actually Facebook groups and building them, but also interacting in other Facebook groups and just getting on time with people. I guess just one thing I want to comment on, and then I'll pause, is when I first started out when I was 21 years old, I went back to every episode of Bigger Pockets and I reached out to every single guest that was on the show at that time. And some people would say that's nuts. And a lot of people got back to me. And I was 21. I had no idea what I was doing. But it was the same approach. Pick your brain, virtual coffee, 15 minutes. Now I take a different approach. My approach is always value add before value ask. But at the time, it worked. So for anyone listening to this, my advice would be just do it. Just reach out to the people. They will be so much more receptive than you think so many of the times. Like this past month, I've been reaching out to my Mount Rushmore of real estate idols to try to get in their network by providing value. And I was amazed at the results. I couldn't believe they came back to me because I was just offering value before asking for anything. So that's my approach now. But I guess to just wrap it up would be just do it. Then if you can put a system on it, and then you will get more responses than you think, especially if you can add value before you ask for it. 
Love that. You reached out to every single guest on BP. I mean, that's taking action. That's still stepping out of the box. Most people are never going to do that. I have guests on all the time and I've experienced this myself. I've been interviewed, I don't know how many times, and I'll put out my number and my email. And I don't know if I've been contacted once or twice, a few times, but not much. It surprises me. People say they want to do these things, but nobody reaches out for help. So great, great content right there, Jonathan, taking action and making it happen. So Jonathan, what's been the hardest part of this real estate business for you so far? I did one flip and it was good learning for me to get a feel for if I'd like it or not. It was not something that gave me any passion or energy and it was really challenging. It was like a $650,000 luxury flip, used hard money, all your classic mistakes, went long on selling it, went long on construction, underestimated the budget, all that stuff. So I guess I take that as a positive. It taught me what not to do. But yeah, that was definitely the hardest thing I've had to do in real estate so far. It was definitely the most stressful. But for now, yeah, I think it's just about picking the right strategy because there's so many fun strategies and I get shiny object syndrome a lot. You know, So I like Airbnb. I like Airbnb arbitrage. But for me, the biggest challenge right now is dialing in and drilling into a strategy that I can commit to for six months and not pick my head up and give my full attention. Now, how did you find the investors for a $650,000 purchase? I just think that's probably a question that a listener probably has right now. It's like, no, wait a minute. He's this young. He doesn't have 200 units yet or whatever. How did you make that kind of purchase happen? We don't have a ton of time, but give us a few things of how you did that. Short and sweet. I called probably 40 hard money lenders told them my story, told them my situation and got a few to opt in. Then I just compared the rates and the fees and the relationship with the people. I just came up with a matrix. One of them, I guess, was excited enough to jump in. They did it. And that was how I found them. But I think I found the actual sources from bigger pockets and forums, asking people who they recommend for hard money lenders, Googling, looking at hard money brokers, basically just came up with a list, started cold calling every one of them, telling them a business plan and was just trying. You are not afraid to get on the phone, are you? <laughs> no. And the funny part is, I don't even think I'm good at it. Like, I would call myself an introvert, but I'm just like, it's the thing I need to do. So I might as well do it. I would say majority of this business, you don't have to be an expert. You don't have to be extremely talented, but you do have to take action. You know, <laughs> what's a way you've recently improved your business that we could apply to ours? Something that we haven't talked about? Probably the way that I've been finding deals lately. That's the one that I hear on every podcast, having problems finding deals. For me, my struggles more have been on analyzing the deals and coming up to a specific offer price and estimating repair costs because I feel like some of these deals are very different. But for me, something that I've learned lately, my favorite way to source off-market deals has been calling property managers instead of owners because if I tell them what I want, I've found a lot of success with this. They're willing to carve out something maybe in their portfolio. And if they're the broker they double dip. They get the commission on the sale, but they also can control the management from owner to owner. So that's been my way. Through that, I've probably found 15 off-market deals in my sweet spot just by calling property managers and then developing relationships. I kind of looked at it like a double dip that then I know who the property managers are in the area and have relationships. But that's the biggest one. I found that to be my keystone habit of developing relationships with them to find deals. What's your best source for meeting new investors right now? Facebook. Number one thing that's contributed to your success? Consistency. Small actions, consistency. Not the big knock myself out one day and then never do it again. Just a little bit every day. What are a couple of those things you've been consistent at that's moved the needle? 
recording a ton of podcasts in advance, you know, so I have 30 released now, but I probably have a hundred recorded. And now that's how I backed into the system that I feel comfortable enough to do a daily podcast. Like we talked about the other one, small, consistent action, adding members to the Facebook group. And then another small one is every day I try to analyze a deal. Our guest is Emma Powell. Thanks for being on the show, Emma. Hey, thanks for having me, Whitney. Small steps on new real estate business every day added up to 92 units in just two years. Working part-time while homeschooling six kids, Emma Powell shows how sustained action that doesn't look like much day-to-day adds up fast with big-picture thinking. She believes that anyone can leverage their previous experience to cross-train into investing in a way that fits her or their unique skills and background. Uh, Emma, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to just hearing your story. I think it can be so motivating to the listener who feels like they have too much on their plate. You know, it's like, how can I get into real estate when, you know, I have all these other things or maybe a W-2, a job or whatever it may be. You have done it and I'm looking forward to hearing about this. Tell, Get us started and, and just some background and how you've gotten to where you're at now. And we're going to get into how you've kept all the plates spinning. So when we got started real estate investing, like most other people do, we just bought our single family house, you know, the one that we were living in. And we discovered really quickly, we bought in a brand new neighborhood where there's all the construction trash and the mess scattered around and you're driving over nails and getting punctures in your tire. We got into that house with some down payment assistance from our county. Our realtor hooked us up with that. We didn't really even know that that existed. So we got into that first house basically with zero down. And within four years, it had gone up in value we only made about $35,000 off that house in four years because that was during a mini downturn. And so we got out of that one when we had a couple more kids and didn't fit into it anymore and did the same thing, went and bought in a brand new neighborhood. It was a master plan community in Texas, one of those 2,500 home monstrosities that we were the very first people to buy a house in that community. Like literally the first people to sign on the line, almost the first people to move into the neighborhood. And that downturn was 2008. And so the fortunate part was that we never were underwater on that house. And so even if my husband had gotten laid off, we would have been able to get out of that house and sell it and even make a little bit of money on it. So at the end, we walked away from that one with everything that we put into it and a little bit leftover. We've been saving up because of that scary 2009 situation. I had a part-time side hustle as a photographer And my husband, an IT guy, he was working his job plus a part-time job because we were just piling up cash because we were terrified of what was happening in 2009, 2010 of a layoff. And so we we sold that house and bought a total fixer-upper just outside of Austin. And then right after we bought that house, we found out that we were having our sixth child, (laughs) was not planned. And he lost his job. He got laid off in 2011. So we weathered all of that only to get laid off right at the end of it. We had this brand new house and we had just ripped the back off of it. And so he got a job offer out of state. We just couldn't leave the house like that. So he convinced his part-time job to pick him up full-time. And I had to quit my photography because I was having a new baby. It was just a really difficult time in our lives. But we fixed that house up. We did most of the work ourselves. Lived in it for six years. And then when we sold it, we, he got laid off again. <laughs> you know, that's how the tech industry works. You don't have a lot of control over your income. And all that time, I was stay-at-home mom homeschooling with this little photography side hustle. I did weddings and real estate photography. I did that for 10 years. And when we moved to Salt Lake for this new job about... I think it was about two and a half years ago. We had sold that house. We didn't have any debt. 
we had this pile of cash in our pockets and we'd always wanted to have rental houses, but we just had never done it. But I had this pile of cash and I told my husband, I said, I made this money off of real estate from that first zero down house to this massive remodel that we did. This is real estate money and I'm going to take it. I'm going to go make a real estate business. I'm going to finally get those rentals. And so I just started showing up to meetups, found bigger pockets, found RIAs, found all these Facebook groups that were about it, LinkedIn groups, started educating myself. I put that money out with a local flipper so that it could be working while I was figuring out what I was doing. And when it came back, I just started buying up stuff from local wholesalers and doing the small multi thing, always with an eye because the RIA told me you should go commercial, you could go multifamily. And I started meeting these big multifamily guys and I knew that's where I, would, I was headed. And I was just trying to put my money to work to figure something out, learn about property management. And when I saw that first deal, a friend of mine, a local was selling at a 50 unit. I said, send it over here. I didn't know how to underwrite it and what I was doing. But because of that belief that that was where it was at, I took it, ran it through a, a homemade, terrible spreadsheet. And I took it to some people in my RIA that I knew how to do that. I thought it was a good deal, but I wasn't sure. And they looked at it and said, this is a good deal. Do you need some help raising capital for it? And we went and, and bought that 50 units. So that was about a year into my journey, about six months after I bought my first investment home. Wow. Incredible. You know, I hear numerous things there that, I mean, obviously you just, you had a love for real estate. You knew that real estate is how you made that money and knew that it could make more money. You started putting it to work, even started going to the REI, the real estate investment clubs and learning from others, invested with a local flipper, just knew the money could work if you put it to work. But then, you know, finding that 50 unit, I think it's, it's interesting that you know, you didn't shy away from that and think, okay, well, wait a minute, you know, I'm not ready for a 50 unit. So I want to stop there for a minute. And what gave you the confidence to purchase a 50 unit deal? It seems so much larger, obviously, than what you had purchased in the past or anything you'd done in real estate. I knew that 100 unit was the goal because the economies of scale, I knew that 60 to 150 was really where the property management expenses would go down and that, that economy of scale of just being able to have everything under one roof with the payroll. So I knew that that 50 unit was even a little bit smaller than what I wanted. But I just woke up one morning and was scrolling through my Facebook feed because I knew that social media was how you raised capital and how you built your business. And so I was really building out my social media profile to gear it towards running this type of a business. And a lady I knew from the RIA said, Hey, we're selling our 50 unit. It was near my husband's hometown, not far from where we were, a couple hours from Salt Lake. And she said, Does anybody want information? And I put my email on there and said, Yes, please send it to me. And it was right there in public. Anybody on Facebook could have gotten it. A bunch of us are friends with her. And I know I'm sure other people asked for the information, but I got it and I crunched it that same day and it looked good. Like I said, I was completely uneducated and it was a bubblegum homemade spreadsheet, but just crunching a few things like 1% rule, cap rate, those types of things. I thought, okay, I've got some here. Hopefully it pans out. And it did. We bought that. We closed on that one, I think, early this year. It took almost six months to get it closed because you know I didn't know what I was doing, but it was a good deal. So I was willing to do whatever it took to get that thing closed. Went through a lot of a lot of hoops to get that done. Did you syndicate that deal? We did. It was a 506C, but that's part of why it took so long to get closed because we were going to JV it. And then we're going to do private debt, JV, and then institutional private debt. And then at the last minute, we're like, we just got to syndicate this thing because it kept not working out. So we 
hurried and put a 506C syndication on it because we've been so public about it. We didn't want to run into problems with doing a 506B on it at that point. So that's why we did the C. And also it gave us a really great opportunity to publicly build our business with our social media platforms and get credibility. So we knew if that thing didn't close, then we were going to have to go back and tell everybody, hey, this big deal, we made a big deal out of it. We didn't close it. We were not willing to do that. We had a lot of earnest money hard. It just wasn't an option. We just had to No, that is awesome. Uh, I love hearing stories like that. Just your commitment to making that happen. And I think it started way before you had that opportunity, even for that deal. You know, like you, even in your bio, you know, you talk about the things you do, the small steps every day. And so I want to talk about that a little bit. I would love to just go into that deal and talk more about that. But I want to be able, you to be able to highlight those small steps to get there and just the workload that you had. Obviously, I mean, just taking care of a home, I mean, by itself, my wife works at home, stays at home and manages the home. I mean, with our kids, I mean, it, it is more than a full-time job. We couldn't do it without her, right? I mean, it's, it's just, we're such a team sport here in our home as well. And so I can relate to, you know, the level of workload that you have, but you still were able to make this happen. How were you able to keep the place spinning? What are some of those small steps that you did on a daily basis that helped you to get there, you know, that the listener could put into play, you know, this week? Well, I'll relate that back to when I first started homeschooling, especially homeschooling a large family. I used to think people who homeschooled large families were crazy because if you had that many kids, wouldn't you want to put them all in school because you needed help? You needed to outsource some of that. And in this business, it's a big deal. You can't do it all. You need to figure out how to outsource. There's not just how to outsource. It's also how to delegate, but simplify and eliminate. And so homeschooling for me was a way to simplify and eliminate. Sending my kids to school was kind of like me having a part-time job. It was a lot of volunteering in the classroom, making sure the backpacks and the homework were done according to somebody else's plan and somebody else's way that they were going to do their classroom management. And it was really a, a big burden on me. And I realized after we had our third kid in school, why people with big families homeschool. I needed all my ducklings in a row going the same direction and it was just being pulled too many ways. So that was a big lesson in simplification. Also, what you'll learn from parents of big families is how to simplify housework. You stop folding everybody's laundry, you get a basket, you throw it in there, they put it in their room and it's up to them if they're going to put it in their drawers or not. You just got to learn how to, how to lower your expectations and how to focus on what really matters. If you're trying to spin all the plates make sure that the ones that crashed are the ones that don't matter. And so being able to focus on what's really important, and that's no different in a real estate business. I was able to simplify my homeschool and simplify my parenting where I had a little bit of juice left over to run a business. I have always run a little cottage business. Like I said before, photography, I taught graphic design online when I had babies and couldn't get out onto location. And as soon as my kids were a little older to start babysitting and I could step away for a couple of hours or work on weekends and evenings when my husband was home. I went out on location and, and expanded my business that way. So I've always had a little bit of that, but something's got to give. I learned how to outsource by hiring another local homeschool mom to come in and clean the house a couple times a week. I made more money doing a photo shoot than I did paying her each week. And so I just scheduled an extra photo shoot to pay her. And I had more fun doing it anyway than cleaning my own house. I didn't ever want to hire childcare because I had fun with my kids. I like being around my kids, but I didn't like doing housework. Being able to simplify, eliminate, and then delegate the rest was what I learned in my home management. And then that's only just carried over into my business. So how do you keep the plates spinning? Stop spinning so many plates and make sure that the ones you are spinning are the ones that really matter. 
What's the thing recently you've done to improve your business that we could apply to our business? Systemization. We're trying to e-myth our business right now. If you haven't read that book, The E-Myth Revisited, it's basically how to turn your small business into a McDonald's where you can plug any uneducated teenager into it and they can run it. And you can tolerate turnover because the systems and the training are such that you can plug people in. So what I'm working on right now are, are two things. One, getting my underwriting system screening down so there are only maybe five or six inputs into a spreadsheet that I can train an intern or somebody that wants to be mentored to comb through an offering memorandum, plug those in. I have a lot of uh, baked in assumptions. And if the boxes light up green, then they pass it up to me. And then I'm only spending time on deals that have some promise. I tend to get really discouraged wasting time on deals that are garbage. And so I procrastinate because I don't really like underwriting. I had to force myself to learn how to do it. And so we just got that system dialed in and I'm starting to train people how to do it now. I hired an intern to do my bookkeeping and to start doing this underwriting. And then the second system is getting my CRM or my, my customer relationship management software Everybody get entered in. So my assistant, my intern is combing through like all my old Facebook messages and LinkedIn messages and starting to enter them into my CRM so that I can communicate with people in a more organized way, make sure I'm touching base. That's something that networking is just as technical a skill as underwriting and people tend to wing it, but they would never wing underwriting and networking. I think that people tend to think, oh, you're just naturally social or you're just naturally outgoing or you're just naturally charismatic. No, there's a lot of technical stuff that goes in towards networking, managing the network, communicating with the network, understanding the psychology of how to communicate with people. And so just getting that CRM built and getting that system in place is what we're working on right now. Many great things there that you all are improving. And uh, I love that uh, just systematizing, it seems like a, it's a big topic right now. Uh, but I think any business that's trying to scale, I mean, it's something you have to do. What's your best source for meeting new investors right now? As lots of people have said before, LinkedIn, the first $50,000 I raised was a stranger on LinkedIn with that 506C. He sent me a private message and he said, I was really touched by that story that you shared. It was like a three-line story where somebody said, what's your why? And it was basically that story where my husband got laid off uh, in 2017. And I told him, I said, look, I've got to do something. This photography income, this part-time income is not going to support our family I will never let this happen again. I'm going to find some sort of part-time income that can support us on a full-time full-time income, a part-time job that gets a full-time income. I didn't know what it was at that time, but I said I would figure it out. So he read that on LinkedIn and he said, wow, that really touched me and I'd love to be involved in investing in your next deal. And I thought, wow, LinkedIn, who knew? So that's when I started getting more involved rather than Facebook more on LinkedIn. Now I have raised money since then on Facebook and that has been a good tool, but really focusing on LinkedIn, I would say is where you should be spending your time if you're trying to raise capital. Thank you for being with us again today. I hope that you have learned a lot from the show. Don't forget to like and subscribe. I hope you're telling your friends about the Real Estate Syndication Show and how they can also build wealth in real estate. You can also go to lifebridgecapital.com and start investing today. 